Ahmed Nirsessian, director of the Helix Center. Welcome to this program on synthetic and systemic biology. Uh, before uh, Rob Penzer introduces the participants and tells you a word or two about our future programs, I'd like to say that the me meeting will last around an hour, an hour, 15 minutes. After that, you'll have time to ask questions. But please ask questions rather than making commentaries. Uh, I think it works better that way. Thank you. So let me tell you first about some upcoming events. On Saturday, May 18th from 6.30 to 8.30, we're going to have the second annual Heavy Mental Variety Show. It's a night of mind, brain, and magic. The amygdaloids, led by uh, neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, will play several suites of original songs on mind-brain topics, the mind-body problem, memory, emotion, unconscious processes, and mental disorders. Each suite will be preceded by a short lecture on the scientific or philosophical foundations of the topic. Uh, also, uh, internationally acclaimed magician Mark Mitten will dazzle you with mind-bending and brain-twisting tricks of his trade. Doors open at 6.15. Admission is $10 without drink tickets and $17 for tickets with two beers or glasses of wine. Uh, Saturday, June 8th, Altruism and Empathy is a program with Stephanie Brown, Alan Leslie, Wynne Schwartz, and others. Uh, then there are some roundtables that are in the works for September, but I want to uh, make s a special emphasis on uh, a symposium that we'll be holding on October 12th and 13th in co-sponsorship with the Algama Foundation of Switzerland. Uh, it'll be a two-day symposium exploring the significance of the work of A.B. Warburg for art, science, and psychoanalysis. We will re-examine his work through the compound lenses of current knowledge of dynamic memory, the Freudian unconscious, and historical scholarship. It will be an international gathering of scholars drawn from the arts and sciences, uh, featuring roundtables uh, exploring Warburg's ideas and their adumbrations, and will focus on neuroesthetics, memory and unconscious, psychosis and creativity, and uh, Biswanger, and Warburg, Biswanger was his psychiatrist at one point, and classical and Renaissance art. Uh, also, the evening preceding it, Friday the 11th, will feature the amygdaloids returning for a pre-symposium performance. And joining us at the symposium thus far are historian Christopher Johnson, historian and psychoanalyst Peter Lohenberg, art historian David Friedberg, philosopher and art historian Georges Didier Huberman, philosopher Andrea Pinotti, Warburg Institute historian Francois Cuivet, neuroscientists Christina Alberini, Anjan Chatterjee, and Vittorio Galese, and Pierre Magistretti, uh, and psychoanalysts Francois Ansermet and Edna Sassian, also novelist and essayist Siri Hustved. Let me go on now to today's program. Uh, no. As, so, as soon as we have uh, the, the definite uh, times of the roundtables and, and uh, the confirmed uh, other participants, we'll put it up on the website. But keep checking back. Thanks. So let me introduce today's uh, participants. Andrea Califano is the Clyde and Helen Wu Professor of Chemical and Systems Biology in the Departments of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics and of Biomedical Informatics at Columbia University. He is currently the Founding Director and Chair of the Columbia Initiative for Systems Biology. He also serves as Associate Director for Bioinformatics in the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. 
Dr. Califano serves on numerous editorial and scientific advisory boards, including the Board of Scientific Advisors of St. Jude Children's Hospital, the Sanford Burnham Institute, MD Anderson Genomic Medicine Department, and the National Cancer Institute. Mark Fishman is president of the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. He leads worldwide discovery and early clinical activities of Novartis, which aims to develop novel therapeutics for diseases. Prior to joining Novartis, Dr. Fishman was professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, as well as chief of cardiology at the Mass General Hospital and the founding director of their cardiovascular research center. Dr. Fishman is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Institutes of Medicine of the National Academies. Michael Hecht is professor of chemistry at Princeton and holds affiliated appointments in the Department of Molecular Biology and the Institute for Integrative Genomics. His research is at the interface of chemistry and biology. Specifically, his lab works in protein design and synthetic biology, as well as on the molecular underpinnings of Alzheimer's disease. In addition to teaching and research, Dr. Hecht is the master of Forbes College, one of the six undergraduate colleges at Princeton University. Christopher Mason is assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medical College in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics and at the Institute for Computational Biomedicine. Professor Mason also holds appointments in the Tri-Institutional Program on Computational Biology and Medicine of Cornell Memorial Sloan Kettering and Rockefeller, and at the Weill Cornell Cancer Center, where he's the director of the Single Molecule Lab. He is co-founder also of the New York Synthetic Biology Association. Saeed Tavisi is a systems biologist who was professor in the Department of Molecular Biology and the Institute for Integrative Genomics at Princeton before joining the faculty at Columbia University in 2011. Over the years, his laboratory has addressed fundamental challenges in decoding the regulatory genome and revealing how networks of interacting genes implement complex phenotypes. The long-term goal of his research is to achieve a predictive understanding of biological behavior in terms of the structural and dynamical properties of the underlying molecular networks. And Michael Waldholtz most recently served for six years as managing editor at Bloomberg News Businessweek following his 25-year career as a writer, editor, and bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal. At Bloomberg, he was responsible for news coverage related to healthcare and science, including the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries, health insurance, medical services, public health, and health policy. Mr. Waldholtz is the author of the book Curing Cancer and a co-author of Genome. He was awarded the 1996 Pulitzer Prize for National Report for his stories on the breakthrough in AIDS medicine. Let's, uh, let's start the conversation. Who would like to initiate with a question or a remark or maybe say a few words about what the subject is about? I think one of the ways to um, discuss the, the topic, I'm a systems biologist, but also dabble in synthetic biology. But um, these new fields, as they emerge, they have a definition problem. Because the initial, the initial, um, the initial investigators who are you know, forging the path forward, they're all doing somewhat different things. And they're in, in the process of actually defining the field. And so I think one way to, uh, to, to define systems biology is in contrast to the prevailing approaches of, of modern biology of the last century that have been extremely successful. Two axes of which are um, biochemistry and genetics. So I, mean, I think if, 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 you, if I were to describe this really powerful um, existing methodology that, that, that is responsible for basically everything that we know, almost everything that we know right now, there are two ways of studying biological systems. One is to 
break it down into its co composite components and intricately study the details of those individual components in an attempt to figure out what, what, they're, what they're doing, what the whole system is doing. That's sort of uh, what biochemistry does. The other approach has been very successful, is even older than biochemistry, which is genetics, which is to take those individual components, break them down, and see the effect that that has on the system, see how that perturbation causes a malfunction in the system, right? And um, so it's, it's akin to it's essentially studying, for example, how a car works by you know, slowly destroying little parts of it, like taking out the spark plug or the carburetor and seeing what effect that has. So it's, it's an extremely gross and caveman approach to understanding the system, but it has been extremely successful. But the real challenge nowadays for, for all of us in biology, and I think that's what kind of was the impetus behind systems biology, is to attempt to understand what the whole system is all about. What is it doing? How are the parts coming together? And I think the grand um, vision of the, I think for us to shoot for is to have an understanding of, of biological systems in ways that are more similar to what physicists uh, think about systems, which is to be able to predict the dynamical trajectory of a system in time, know it well enough to understand that, right? That's the challenge. And I would argue that we're very, very far from that still. But this is kind of the, um, this is kind of the goal that we're shooting for. To engineer the system. Yeah. Well, I think engineering a system is important because I think one way, and that, that's sort of what synthetic biology is about, but I think in order to really, if you, if you want to prove to someone that you really understand the system, you, you should be able to re-engineer an instant of it. And, and, and have it and, and predict what that thing is going to do. And I think that's this, this scientific value of synthetic biology. There are, of course, other aspects of synthetic biology that are really important. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the, the true test of our understanding is the ability to forward engineer and then you know, discreetly predict exactly what might occur. It scares some people, though. That's the thing. When you say synthetic biology, there's often uh, people uh, who are worried that you're going to be creating uh, superbugs or, or um, you know, they think of evil scientists in their lab hackling late at night. Uh, but the you know, most, most biohackers or most synthetic biologists are generally just tinkerers. They just want to try to discern what is sort of this test of their understanding of the genetic system. And um, there's even a, a laboratory in Brooklyn that's called GenSpace, which is a community laboratory. The way you think of buying a gym membership today, you could go to Brooklyn on Atlantic Avenue and get a membership to GenSpace and go and play with pipettes. And if you want to make some of your cells turn green with GFP, you can do that in a couple weekends and uh, learn how to do it. So there's, you know, and that's just synthetic biology. But when they set up the lab in, in Brooklyn, they had the FBI come first to make sure that they were legitimate and they invited them to come. No, really, we're just a, a group of people who want to tinker. They're really tinkerers. And so you go from that impetus of tinkering, I think, in, in larger academic and industrial centers to make it on a, on a real high throughput scale. So it's, well, I was, I was just going to say, maybe as, a, as, a, as the lay person, the non-scientist on the panel, it might be good for everyone here if someone could give, because I, th I think that was a really great general picture of, of, of how systems biology differs from what was being done. But I think for many of us, synthetic biology needs a very specific description with examples of what's yeah. going on. I'll do that. Um, so again, I, I think what, what Said was defining was systems biology, synthetic biology. Um, in a sense, I'd like to define that by saying that biology as we know it, be it old biology that was taking things piece at a time, or systems biology, the modern type of biology, those fields are looking at that which is. 
And I think synthetic biology goes a step beyond that and asks what might be possible. What, what might we have not yet seen, but is still possible? Okay, so in a sense, well, just, just that, that synthetic biology is going beyond that which is and, and explores that which might be possible, which really does have a bit of a, a you know, science fiction-y, brave new world tone to it, um, but it's real. So could you... Um, there, so, let me elaborate on that. Right. <clears throat> and I'll tell, I think much of what people normally think of as synthetic biology um, is where people are taking pre-existing genes, proteins, or regulatory elements from various different uh, cells, organisms, and mixing and matching them to make new cells that have particular properties. The example you gave a moment was a moment ago where you can take a green fluorescent protein that exists in one particular system and then move it into another system, and you know, people have made well, green fluorescent organisms that, are, that didn't fluoresce before. So that's one form of, of uh, synthetic biology. Um, and that's, to make E. coli smell like bananas, for example. Right. So, so and, and in, that, in that case, there people are taking pre... In a sense, one can look at it by, as, as an analogy, as a toolkit of parts. And so the natural biology that we have is a toolkit of parts, genes and proteins and regulatory elements. And much of what people do in synthetic biology is to take these tools, these parts, and rearrange them into different machines. Um, that's one form of synthetic biology, and that's what most people think of when they discuss synthetic biology. I have a different take on synthetic biology, which I don't want to, uh, well, I'll do it now, a different take on synthetic biology, which is a bit perhaps more synthetic, um, and that is, well, you started by saying, how do we define the basics, and maybe we'll define biology before we even get going. And, um, so what does it take to be a living system? What does it take to be a cell? What are the minimal requirements to be a cell? And I think in some respects, one can say that a living system, a cell, has to have molecular machinery, molecular machines that do stuff, right? So a living system has to have an enzyme that digests food. That's a molecular machine. Or a molecular machine that enables vision. Um, so those are molecular machines. And most of the molecular machines in biology are proteins. So <clears throat> one thing living systems need are or defining living systems is a collection of molecular machines that do stuff. The second thing I think that living system, that we need to define in terms of living systems are a blueprint or an encoding, a way of encoding those molecular machines such that it can be passed down from generation to generation. So a factory is a, is a collection of machines, not molecular machines, but it's not alive. It doesn't pass down that collection of machines to the next generation. Biological systems, cells, have a collection of molecular machines, the proteins, that do stuff, and a genome that encodes those molecular machines, and the genome gets passed down along the way. So my view of synthetic biology is a, is a bit different from, from what I mentioned earlier in the sense that instead of taking molecular machines and genes that pre-exist in nature and recombining them into different systems, taking the banana smell and putting it into bacteria, taking the green fluorescent protein and putting it into cats or whatever, instead of mixing and matching pre-existing parts, I think synthetic biology in, it, in its most extreme case is now at the point where rather than take those pre-existing machines and mixing and matching them, one can ask, is it now possible to come up with new sequences, new proteins, new genes that can sustain life? I would, I would challenge a little bit that because um, I think there's a much broader sense in which we can think of, system, of, of synthetic biology. Um, for, for instance, if you go back to what Say was saying in terms of sort of creating something that has essentially a new function that had not been previously seen, utilizing biological components. You could say that, for instance, using saccharomyces to synthesize alcohol in a vat was probably the oldest form of synthetic biology. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with, uh, with, with the genome or with sort of 
implicit, there are many ways in which you can even use natural evolution. Um, you could create environments in which bacteria can multiply and naturally achieve some type of selective functions, and that also can be considered a sort of uh, synthetic biology. And so I would say there's an entire progression of application of synthetic biology that go all the way from uh, sort of synthesizing molecules using sort of biological forms, um, all the way to actually synthesizing novel forms of biological life by messing around with the DNA. And I think kind of they're almost, as a synthetic biology and system biology are almost the two faces of the same coin. I think if you exclude reproduction, the two strongest pulsions of the human mind so one, to try and figure out how things work, and the second one is to mess around with them as soon as you understand how they work. And to some extent, that's exactly what, what the two fields are doing. Systems biology is trying to figure out how things work, and it's trying to do so in a way that sort of takes steps back and goes into a much more unbiased, sort of completely uh, neutral approach to understand biology, where, for instance, people say, you know, let's make an example of the English language, and say the word duck, uh, depending on how, where you say the word duck, you know, somebody says duck and you're in the street, you better just get out of the way. But if somebody says duck in a, in a French restaurant, then no, it means a completely different thing. And so in biology, it's exactly the same thing. The same gene may be doing completely different things in different contexts, yet the old vision of molecular biology was that this is a repressor, this has this function, this activates apoptosis, etc. And these are all true uh, observation in a particular context. And I think if systems biologists thought of something, is that context is extraordinarily important, and context is both molecular and, 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 and physiological. Uh, so on the other side, I think once we have this recipe, for instance, something that we, we think of ourselves sort of living at, uh, in our lab, living at the boundary of, of systems and synthetic biology, some of the things that we use from systems to actually implement the synthetic biology is reprogramming cells. So if you take, for instance, uh, two genes and you modulate them using the molecule or using genetic approaches, and you can now turn a lineage of a cell into another lineage. Uh, that's a form of, of, of synthetic biology. It doesn't necessarily require some programming the DNA, but certainly reprograms the full cells into a completely novel function. So, so these are, I would say, there's an entire repertoire, and, and this is also a way to demystify a little bit the field because if you start thinking of synthetic biology as, as the way you know beer was done in the first place. Then it becomes a little bit less threatening if you think about you know it's manipulating our DNA and making Frankenstein's. Uh, so and, and where you put exactly that threshold where you say it goes from being something that is controversial to being something that is not controversial, I think that's where you really have to move your ethical slider and try to figure out where it is. But uh, it's not a it's not a real breakpoint. It's an entire continuum. I, I think the breakpoint is that it, it's now just in the last few years become possible to not just move proteins and genes from one system to another, but to actually create new sequences that bear no resemblance to anything that ever existed before, and to have those enable biological functions. I think that's new. Can that's a nature that we do that all the time. So every no. day you go on a plane, you're, you're getting exposed to ionizing radiation, and you know, every cell in your body accumulates novel changes. So I'm just saying, you could achieve the same goal by using goal-directed functional optimization in a high, uh, sorry, in a high mutational context. For instance, you remove DNA repair genes from a bacterium, you can essentially engineer the same way as if you actually put in new pieces. You know, I have a simpler definition. <laughs> which is any interaction that humans have with biological systems yeah. that changes the behavior of those systems. And the implications that come from that 
run a gamut. As a physician, I'll start with the medical possibilities are fantastic. You can make new medicines. In fact, any medicine, in fact, is uh, synthetic biology, both in its origin and its impact on the cell. Uh, and then the second is the scientific question, which I think is what's being addressed here too, which is a question of how do you actually influence a cellular system? And what's remarkable is how robust systems are. They tend not to change. So you can push on them in many, many ways without them changing. And that's where, as a geneticist, the caveman approach, which is yeah. what I do, is, um, is so remarkable because the, that approach, the genetic approach, finds those few nodes in the whole system that are critical and causes the system to either collapse or to amplify. And those are, in many ways, where the synthetic biologist will go because most of the places you interfere, turning genes up or down or proteins on or off, do nothing. And so, in fact, of course, it's actually a miracle that any of us survive any drug we're given uh, because these drugs have very powerful effects. Somehow the body buffers them in most cells except for the cancer cell or the cell that needs to be attacked. So that's the scientific element. But for me, it's not a complex, synthetic biology is not complicated. It's anything you do that changes the system, the behavior of that system. I think, I think something that's really fundamental to that point is, you know, the, the origin of these systems, right? Biological systems come about through this random process of mutation and natural selection over hundreds of millions, billions of years, right? And, the, uh, and you know, there are, there's an organizing principle. There are a bunch of organizing principles that contribute to its evolution and its function. So if you imagine these kind of buffered systems where you perturb lots of different components, quite a bit actually, and the cell's doing perfectly fine, you'd imagine that you would say that the biological systems in general are extremely robust to environmental perturbation, to noise, and so on and so forth. Whereas if you compare them to human-engineered systems, like 747 or something, right, each of the components in these, in these machines have been designed to have some tolerance. But the tolerances that they have are typically much worse than biological systems. And part of that has to do with the fact that these systems have to withstand a certain amount of mutation as they evolve with time. They have to, they have, to have components that are modular because of the mixing and matching that goes on and the sharing of genetic information that happens as a function of evolution, mostly among the microbes in horizontal gene transfer. But those kind of contingencies of natural selection are embedded in the way in which the system functions that are very different, different from the kind of things that people think about when they want to design a system from scratch. And I think what's really, what's really amazing uh, and, and really fascinating, I think, to, to, to look forward to in the future is, is the adoption of a lot of these evolutionary methods, some of which I think Michael has, uh, has done uh, in his work and others, is to use, utilize rapid evolutionary scenarios to design systems that are robust to a variety of different environmental perturbations and, and, and variations. And you know what's interesting about that, just as a footnote, is that cancer is not robust. That's right. why we can kill it, because it didn't evolve right. to support the rest of the system. That's right. That's right. 
And, and to that to that end, I think the idea of starting to design systems, designing life again, we would probably not like some of the things that evolution has designed. Uh, for example, increasing gene expression noise as a measure of fitness in some cases, or increasing mutation rate to give you a further adaptive advantage for some bacteria. We would probably not design a system to start to do those things, but they're actually uh, evolution has, has created them. Um, I, I, I think, as a, again, as a layperson looking in, the thing that interests me about synthetic biology is that it is an extension of, of using all the tools of uh, molecular biology or genetic engineering that have come about over the last 20 to 50 years to do what Michael says, which is to create new forms of, of, of life or new versions of existing forms of life by actually in the laboratory creating se genetic sequences that don't exist, often using the same uh, laws of, of that uh, govern how we exist today, laws of mutation. I think for most people, we don't understand that we've evolved to who we are today through some sort of natural selection but that we aren't exactly who we might have engineered from the first place, <laughs> and you know, if we had to choose. Yeah. But that a lot of this tinkering has exactly, you know, people get very concerned, and I'm, I'll bet you we get questions from the public, that you are playing God or tinkering with, with nature in a way that, you know, how do you have the right and who's governing you? But that kind of tinkering, of course, mankind has been doing and nature has been doing from the get-go. Mm -hmm. I often think of the piece of corn. For some reason, I, I always look at corn. When, when corn first evolved on, in, in this hemisphere, in the north or southern hemisphere, it didn't look anything like what corn looks like today. And corn looks like what it does today because of human tinkering with, with, with it. Same with apples. Same, same with apples. Dogs. Dogs, <laughs> dogs are even better example. So we've been tinkering all along. Or horses, yeah. And I would even argue, I'd even I'd push back against people who, who critique it. And one is the historical context you just mentioned. But I would even argue, I guess I'd put forward the thesis that it's actually our duty as a species to embrace the engineering and that um, our survival may very well depend on it. If you think in the long, long term, I'll, I'll posit the sort of thought experiment. So you think 100 years from now, or 1,000 years from now, or a million years from now. Um, I actually have this question whenever we interview grad students or faculty for the department. My last question I always ask them is, how long do you think the human species will survive? And it always throws people off because they're not expecting that at a job interview or a student interview. But I like it because it gives me a sense of their hope, actually, for the human species. And a lot, of, a lot of times people say a thousand years or a million years. And I usually remind them we've been here at least for several million years in our current form. Uh, but one person even said 100 years. I think, well, humans will only be here for another 100 years. And I said, well, good God, man. Why don't you just go to the beach and sell bananas and hang out? And he said, well, I want the last 100 years to really count. It was actually what he said. <laughs> I couldn't imagine it. But, but I would argue it's our duty because if we probably won't be here on this planet forever. And the human genome's not built to live on other planets. So we may have to think of a time when we re-engineer the species on which we depend, or even the human genome, uh, in order to actually survive in a long, long, long term. I think we, we, we have the ability as a species to think that far, so we should consider that as a thought experiment. So there's a, there's a precise moment in time. I think if you look at Albers, Nathans, and Smith, uh, Nobel Prize, right, when they restriction enzymes, that demarcated a very important milestone because before, the only thing you could do to manipulate biology was essentially look very natural, you know, like you could graft a plant on top of another plant, you know, and you know, people have been doing that for t tens of thousands of years. Nobody ever thought that would be, you know, you know either unethical or potentially controversial. Um, people have been breeding dogs, et cetera. But the moment you could actually do it molecularly and, and actually infringe 
on the domain of the most sacred molecule, it was DNA, then all of a sudden things escalate to tremendous proportion. And I think, you know, obviously, one of the things that actually Mark said I think is extremely important is that you have to, you know, we, we live to be a system of homeostasis, and so actually 90% of our machinery is to keep the cell doing exactly what it's doing, regardless of perturbation. But the biggest homeostatic system is the actual world. You know, if you look, go outside, you know, one of the biggest problems you have right now, people try to engineer algae to produce lipids at much higher rates, so you, for instance, get better biofuel production. And people have been very successful doing that. You know why we're not producing fuels? Because the moment you actually start bringing these things in a normal environment, they are immediately outcompeted by normal algae that don't do that. And so that's the way of the, of the planet of getting back and basically telling you, look, yeah, you can produce more fuel, but for the planet, it's not very helpful. And so these, these species will actually be outcompeted and will eventually die. It will become not a dominant species. So I think that we have to always come to terms um, with, with, I think today, I read the New York Times, that our CO2 levels are the highest in 400 million years. That worries me a heck of a lot more because that can trigger an absolutely irreversible catastrophe and the planet has no way to react to that. Um, most of the living organisms, uh, if you think on the number of species that we have and the number of genetic experiments that are happening every day in each one of them just because of you know, rate, normal rates of mutations, almost everything that you could possibly do in the lab is actually being done out there. Uh, so when you say we're synthesizing a new virus for influenza that is lethal and can transmit to man to man, that's being done every day out there. Uh, I have to disagree with that. I have to go back to what I said before and disagree with that. I think the current and the next stage of synthetic biology are profoundly different. It's not just ionizing radiation and individual mutations, and it's not just sampling sequences that may have been already sampled. I think it's, it's at the point now when one can design proteins entirely from scratch that are not, muta uh, <coughs> yeah, not mutationally related to anything that's been seen on Earth before, and one can sample new sequences, both protein and DNA sequences, that are unrelated to anything that's ever been around. And I think that's a fundamentally different thing. It's not just making mutations. Michael, making can you give, has, has anything been created like that that can, Sorry? A, a specific example? Well, I, I, I mean, that's what my lab does, but there, there's also, um, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of protein design, there's, there's David Baker in Seattle who's doing computational work to design proteins entirely from scratch with predetermined folds and predetermined activities um, that are unrelated to anything that, any sequences that exist on Earth. My own work, we're making libraries of, of novel sequences unrelated to anything that has ever existed on Earth. Sequence space is larger than can have ever been sampled over the history of, of the universe. And so one can now make sequences that have never existed before and then challenge those sequences to provide, to, to see whether they can provide life-sustaining functions. So one can actually go into bacterial cells, knock out parts of the genome, and then see if those parts of the genome can be replaced by sequences that never existed before. So if you do that, if you take a bacterial cell that has 4,000 genes and you replace four of them, well, then it's an E. coli that's a little weird and it has four new genes. Again, these are not mutant genes. These are genes unrelated to anything that ever existed. So if you do it four out of 4,000, it's a minor thing. But when you start, it's, I'm not going to do this, but one can imagine just around the corner that people can now replace large sections of a genome of, let's say, a bacterial cell with sequences that never existed before in the history of the Earth. And then that, I mean, I think one has to sort of come to grips with the fact that those are new forms of life that are not evolutionary variants of existing forms of life. They're fundamentally new, fundamentally new sequences, proteins designed from scratch, genomes designed from scratch. That, I think, is around the corner, and I think that's, you know, 
in terms of philosophical or theological issues, that's sort of a, you know, something that one wants to think about. Another example would be chemotherapy. Often we use nucleoside analogs. We have variations of A, C, G, and T that are just different enough that they kill the cells. And so you can use synthetic biology. I would even argue that chemotherapy could be viewed as a form of synthetic biology. And the, gene the, the genetic code. There were 20 amino acids for as long as the world's been around, but we can now engineer the genetic code to have more than 20 amino acids. But what is the, I'm trying to understand or grasp what is the fundamental semantic difference between having a protein that is completely different from another one and got to be completely different because through some very complex evolutionary path got there or one that you engineer from scratch? Parentage. I, the difference right? is parentage. The difference is lineage. The difference is whether it evolved from something that pre-existed out no, no, I, in Darwin's swamp or whether it's something that came to be in a, in a synthetic lab. No, no, I understand, but what I'm saying is it's a different. It's a form of mental evolution. It's like instead of deriving from uh, a process where you do one mutation at a time, you get there. Derived by a process by which the mutation, the complete set of mutation, is com is computed by a computer or by a human being. But the but the point is, you now have a new protein. Well, I'm saying we are creating new proteins all the time. We're doing that mutation. I mean, something in some cases we're doing by big rearrangements and so other things that are, you know, you do an inversion, for instance. That is a really I, I think novel. again, I think in the public's mind, one is. The, the evolutionary is natural, right. natural, right. and this is synthetic. Right. And I think that is the question that the, the product is the same, you know, the protein is the same. So, for instance, again, to get, you know, as, as a journalist, we try to get down to examples. I think there are a couple of examples of synthetic biology that are out there already that are interesting, and it's interesting to see whether the public is bothered by it. Uh, one is, changing the genes of, of algae to produce, algae produce lipids or oils or fats and getting algae to produce biofuel of some type. Or in another instance, changing the, genome, the genetics of yeast to not only uh, create alcohol when they interact with sugar, but now to create fuel, which is already happening. Not in a commercial level, but it's happening. And those are examples of what at least has been described to me as synthetic biology. At that level, I think the public sort of feels, mm, okay, you know, we're, we're sort of tinkering with yeast in one instance, uh, maybe bacteria in a, or algae in another instance, but what, what is it when we start tinkering with humans? So you're talking about the fact that there may be medicine in the future. Do you, what do you, from synthetic biology, okay, what let, do you see? Let me take it over several uh, different ranges. The first is we can now take uh, individual genes in a bacteria and line them up in a way so they will make novel drugs. Because you can predict from the sequence of the enzymes you put in there all the reactions that the cell will do and then they will excrete that in. So you could in principle um, make very complex, and do, can actually, make very complicated molecules naturally in a cell. In fact, these are called natural products, even though these, of course, are unnatural in the sense that way we're thinking about it. So from the point of view of new medicines, very powerful, because the, these kinds of natural products are extremely good at being drugs. Let me take it to the extreme. I have uh, taking care, let's say we're taking care of a, a, a child who has uh, uh, inherited disorder. Well, now we can go in with a particular set of enzymatic replacements, and this has not been done, but in principle, we certainly have done it in experimental systems, 
take out the bad gene and put in the good gene. Replace it with the normal gene. Uh, would you deny that to a child? You're changing their genome. Yeah. Why would you not do that? Now, we're not there. We're far from that. There's lots of issues about how many cells would have to take it up, et cetera, et cetera. But if you had uh, a child with, let's say, with hemophilia, uh, rather than getting regular injections every day uh, or regularly to prevent bleeding, would you not take the opportunity to fix uh, their uh, hemophilia gene? Of course you would. At least I would as a physician. What if it was an embryo? It's easier if it's an embryo. There's less you can cells. certainly do it as an embryo, and that's where it's been done in uh, other animal species. But even in uh, an adult in prince or, or, or a child, in principle, if you could change enough of the uh, liver and you get enough into the liver, you could do it. So there you have an extreme. One, you're tinkering with bacteria. Everyone says you can make a drug. The other, you're tinkering with humans. Both cases, you will, change, you will revolutionize medicine for the better. There's even the more extreme scenario that's actually being used in, in human trials. So HIV infects uh, T lymphocytes. And so there's a small fraction of a Western European population that has a variant of a co-receptor on the surface of cells that is very ineffective for HIV <clears throat> infection. And so what they're doing now in humans now is going in, taking out some of those white, white cells in HIV patients, and using zinc finger nucleases to inactivate or modify that, that co-receptor in a way that makes that T cell, this patient's T cell in vitro, impermeable to the HIV, put it back into the human and have that grow and repopulate. And the idea is that eventually this could be a, a nice way to, to, to uh, destroy the uh, to, to get rid of HIV. Mm -hmm. So these, these kind of things, because of the example that Mark brought up, and, and, and there are gonna be many more examples coming up, because now, because of really amazing, fundamental, basic research into understanding the way in which molecules work, we now have generated these tools that allow us to go in and engineer human cells, or any kind of cells that we want. Mm -hmm. And people are gonna be wanting these treatments because they're critical. Angela right? Cristiano and, has engineered this gene directly into the stem cell compartment of uh, the bone marrow mm -hmm. and, and essentially repopulate the niche. There's a thing, the biliosa, and you know, basically these, well, this one child that was treated was effectively almost completely cure of, of pretty bad disease by essentially doing the, the direct transplantation in the bone marrow. These are, but I, I mean, I, what I was trying to do before was simply, to some extent, demystifying. And when I do this, I'm doing, I'm, I'm kind of doing it in a more, maybe a little bit provocatory way, because obviously, I, I'm not trying to say that I'm not trying to, in fact, to pass judgment at all on this entire field. I'm just basically saying that there are over-sensationalization of, of, of the process, and then there are under-sensationalization of the process that are, that are happening. In some cases, for instance, we think that certain things are you know, immoral when we've actually been doing some other things that are very, very close to them and are not quite substantially different in, in theory, um, but that were considered to be natural. And all of a sudden, because you're doing this at the molecular level, it's no longer natural. Um, and to some extent, there's always when chemistry gets involved that things get complicated. But we have to remember that we all work with chemistry, whether it's natural chemistry or not. Uh, so when you actually graft the plant on another plant and you mix in their genomes, to some extent, you are doing chemistry. You're doing chemistry in a way that doesn't involve pipettes, but it's still chemistry. I think, I, I mean, I want to bring the conversation a little bit back to systems biology because the degree to which synthetic biology is going to be successful and people are gonna rely on 
and, and it's going to actually over long term produce results that people aren't going to be afraid of relies on a foundation of understanding of, of how cells work, right? And that's where systems biology and modern biology comes in, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the major challenges for us is to understand these systems well enough to be able to predict exactly what happens if you re-engineer a particular molecule in the cell and what, is the, what, are, the, what are the consequences of that when you put it back in, in a very complex, multi-scale system, which is a human body, all these organs interacting with each other, where we have just only begun to scratch the surface of that kind of potential interactions that can happen. So, so I think, um, you know, I think synthetic biology and systems biology are going to be interacting with each other as as they as they co-evolve, and and synthetic is going to heavily depend on on uh, on, on systems. And I think this marks the this marks the, actually the, the divide between what Michael and Ray were talking about, which is using natural selection evolution to develop variants of existing molecules, is a is a is a you know brainless essentially a brainless thing. You just set up the selection cause mutations, and you'll, you'll, you'll end up finding bacteria that can do a particular thing, or, or mammalian cells. But having the knowledge of what are the compositional components, the organizing principles by which amino acids come together to form proteins, what do those folds do? How do the folds interact, and how do you make machines out of those folds? Is a, is a, is a foundational knowledge that we need to gain, and people are gaining. You know, Michael's laboratory, for example, in order to set up a foundation that allows us to build new things based on rational engineering principles. And I think that's where the most exciting stuff is happening, because that's where it will impact our understanding of biological systems, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, so I think that's what I find really exciting. And the other way around, too, I think actually what has been, to me, re-transformation is that we always think that so understanding biology informs the ability to engineer it. But actually, the ability to engineer it also really helps dissect it. So for instance, Diego Di Bernardo, who came from uh, Jim Collins' lab, engineered in East a fairly complicated circuit. And that circuit was used in this, this conference that we ran now for the last seven years called DREAM, where we essentially challenge systems biologists to dissect the piece of biology we actually know. The problem is that there's really no piece of biology that we actually know, literally. There's not a single one that we actually know, except for extraordinarily simple things. So having an actual engineer system, and was engineered in a way that could not interact with the rest of the environment needs, um, was incredibly important, because now you can get data that basically says, if you can reconstruct what the logic of the circuit was, now we know that your method works well. Before, there's really no way whether to know whether it was able to right. reconstruct it. You didn't have a gold standard. You didn't have a gold standard. And so this was actually, I think that there's an entire new, um, new sort of discipline in synthetic biology that will help uh, systems biology dissect regulatory models. I'd like to elaborate on, <clears throat> elaborate on something Said said a moment ago about making mutations and selecting is, is brainless is easy, and I agree. Um, versus engineering and, and knowing something about the system. And I think it, it has to do with Darwin on the one hand and engineer on the other hand and having them work together. So if you make random collections of mutations and you do selection, he said it's, it's, it's brainless and mindless. We can do that and it, it works. Um, however, if you understand the system, then you can make a smart library. So suppose you can make 10 to the 9th, a billion different variations of something. If you make that billion variations randomly, and you select among them for a desired property, you may or may not get a hit of what you want, even among a billion. However, if you know something about the system, the system being either the molecule or the entire cell, 
then you can devise a collection, same number, 10 to the ninth, a billion, but now that billion is sampling that region of space that's most likely succeed, to succeed. And that's incredibly powerful. So if you can now make a smart library, um, I'm, I'm using the word library to indicate a collection, right? You now make a smart library of 10 to the ninth variations, and you select, in a Darwinian sense, among those, then you've combined both the, the smarts of the engineering and the, the dumb selection of Darwin, and then you have a much better chance of so getting what Ma you're looking Michael, for. again, I, I ask the question of specificity. You're, you are making libraries of, of proteins or sequences, right? In a particular re area? For what well, okay, purpose? So I'll give you an example. So, so for what purpose? I mean, or give me an example. Well, I, an example is, so, I mean, for example, Jack Shostak is a very well-known scientist, um, Nobel Prize winner. You know, he did some spectacular work where they made libraries of 10 to the 12th, a huge number of sequences, and selected among them for particular features. And they found them, because 10 to the 12th is a big number, and if you, you, know, you weed through that library, you'll find what you're looking for. In our case, we try to make designed libraries, and we'll make a library of 10 to the 6th, much, 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 much smaller, and it'll be much richer in terms of getting folded proteins or functional proteins because you're, you're pre-biasing you're pre the library to that part of space um, you know, that where, where you're more likely to get something that you want. I mean, again, though, are you, are you developing proteins of a certain type for a specific purpose, or are you just doing it to see if you can do it? <laughs> Tinkering. Um, in our, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to see what's possible. Um, what? Let me give an example from something that happens in, in cancer all the time, so with a very precise thing. So people do routinely, uh, after you know, Steve Ellidge and other people introduce the, te the technique, um, very large screens where they essentially knock out every single gene in a particular cell to see what are, because cancer, as Mark was saying, is a little bit less stable than normal cells, actually certain vulnerabilities emerge that are not normally in normal cells. And so they, they knock down every gene and they say, okay, so which gene kills the cell? Um, if you do it that, it's an extraordinarily inefficient way of doing it. So one thing that, that we've shown, for instance, is that you can now study the entire regulatory model of the cell, so you reconstruct it from scratch, from a large number of observations of the cell. And when you interrogate these models with the specific question of how you would want to sort of abrogate the, uh, the, the cell viability, they give you a set of recipes, and these recipes have typically a hit rate of about 60%, meaning that the best one was 100%, the worst one was 30%, on average we get 60% across maybe 15 different tumor types that we looked at. So now instead of having to shut down 24,000 genes and then maybe you have, you know, most of the genes that actually will kill the cell are like shooting on the wheels of a car, they'll kill every cell, the ones that are specific maybe a very, very small number, uh, you now end up having, a, so we go from a, percent, a hit ratio of maybe one in a thousand to a hit ratio now of 60%, which is a huge, uh, which is a huge change and is exactly what uh, I was saying, completely derived by our ability to understand in a rational way what the cell is doing, mechanistically, right? So we still seem to have a, a PR problem, I guess. I think all of us are very pro-synthetic biology, pro-systems biology, but there's still, I think, a large segment of the public that is, is frankly terrified, I guess. But I mean, I don't know, what do you think are the ways we could, I mean, try and demystify it somehow, make it more palatable? I, I, I thought that's how we we're going to get bombarded in the question period. Yeah, I think one of the like medical goods. Yeah. I think one, yeah, one of the questions, you know, yeah. dance around is 
some specific examples, not just. I'll give you one. Okay. I'll give you one. Go ahead. I mean, when you try to find a way to kill a cancer cell with an antibody, you have an antibody that carries a tox toxin, you will screen through artificial libraries that look like antibodies. They're made of antibody components, but they may not be real until you find one that binds tightly and will carry your toxic payload in to kill the cancer cell. That's how you do the business. So you're always, you know, these screens can lead to very powerful new drugs. And they're new proteins that may be uh, unnatural in the sense of being seen before. So the analogy there might be nuclear power, that we could use nu nuclear energy but for a good in that sense. But versus yeah, I'm not, I say I'm not troubled by this because I think it's the same issue that you have with nuclear power. If, if you call everything atomic, then you have the good and the bad. If you call everything synthetic biology, there will be some places we have to worry about it, right? So calling, if you throw everything into the same bucket, instead of saying, let's look at each of the kinds of specific applications and see are there any that actually have problems? And the vast majority uh, are either f add to fundamental knowledge or will add to a therapeutic arm well, of the time. And I think, again, the public, or at least the people I deal with when I'm answering questions as a, as a journalist, uh, for, I think an example you gave, or give a similar one, would say, well, there is a drug out there called Enbro that works very well against rheumatoid arthritis. It is a synthetic antibody. In other words, it's a man-made exactly antibody. The same thing, yeah. It's a man-made antibody. It was made in a laboratory. It takes something that was natural, which is an antibody, and, and scientists figured out a, a way of, of manipulating it or creating it in a form that it works specifically against a, a receptor in the immune system. You know, in arthritis, the immune system is overactive, so this antibody turns the immune system down. Most patients given Enbrel don't know that. It's like me, when I get in my car, I don't really care how it works. Mm. I know that when I turn the key and put it in drive, it goes. All that other stuff I don't care about. So when most patients don't care that Enbrel does what, exactly what I just said. So in that place, place people don't care that it's synthetic. Mm -hmm. but, but when we talk about creating new kinds of bacteria or new forms of yeast, or taking cells out of the body, like you said, manipulating it, and then putting it back in the body, people, I think, begin to have issues with that. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, for example, the experiments at the University of Pennsylvania, where they took lymphocytes out of patients who had terrible cancer and engineered a totally synthetic new receptor on their surface, and then those lymphocytes went and killed that cancer, cured those patients. That's about as, and stayed in that patient forever. Right. So they're carrying this abnormal sequence forever, and my guess is quite happy to do so. So I think it, again, is important what it's for. The other point which needs to be made and was made back at the origin of the molecular biology revolution when everyone was worried and actually shut down molecular biology, as you recall, for a few years, is that pretty much everything we make is not going to survive in the world because it has not been selected for. It, has, it, does, it is not robust. Evolution has done a wonderful job of selecting out anything with any weakness. So pretty much anything we make, and this has been proved time and again, whether it's an unusual mouse, which was the original question, or these bacteria or yeast, will die in competition. So realistically, 
it's going to, I think that the, the problem is small. But it's not non-existent. And that's why I think we should say there will be times you should worry about it and times you don't. And I wouldn't just put it all under the one, one rubric, one umbrella of synthetic biology. Those I would say that you just mentioned with those children, what happens when those children's children, they don't, they no longer it's not have their It doesn't germline. affect the germline. But, so I would take even a step back. So the question is, you have to be very pragmatic about these things. So the question is, is there anything that has ever been possible to do in terms of stopping progression of knowledge? And that has never worked out. I mean, we try, no, so could you have stopped understanding sort of that you can break the atoms and that creates energy? To some extent, we could have prevented it, but somebody at some point would have done. And so I think that the more important in trying to understand whether knowledge is good or bad, I think knowledge is, is neutral, is, is how we use knowledge that we can become good or bad. And so I think that this is a matter that is very important for legislation to take a stance. What are the things that are you know, viable that we can put safely into? So there have, have to be obviously some, you know, a number of safety constraints that have to be satisfied, et cetera. And, but, um, but this is much more of a legislative uh, matter than a matter of, of whether the, the, the knowledge producing exercise that we know that essentially the scientific enterprise is, is undergoing is should be arrested or continued because that that's going to fail no matter what you try. It's never, mm. There's never been one single situation where we've been able to uh, stop the progression of scientific knowledge. So I would step ahead of that and try to figure out what we do with it. I think it's important in the case where you have malicious intent, where you try to create. Uh, you know, warfare agents, and you know, in this in this crazy world of ours today, that's that's possible. The only way to stay ahead of that is to just know more. That's the most important thing. Know more than than the than the guys who are attempting to build uh, malicious agents. The other thing is that we have to do a better job of educating the public, which is pretty dismally scientifically literate about a lot of these issues. I see it in the nuclear case, for example. It is by, by attaching a label onto something, you demonize it immediately and you mm -hmm. shut down the cortex mm -hmm. and nobody, nobody looks deeper. And mm -hmm. same, we, we, we are in the, you know, in the realm where that could happen with synthetic biology. It's up to us, I think, as a scientific community to do better outreach and to educate the public more uh, about the details of exactly what we're doing. Yeah. How, is it that, how is it that we're generating these things? Where do they come from? What were we doing during dog domestication era? How was that different? You know, why do we love dogs? I mean, it was a really amazing experiment of, of human selection, right? And so I think those are the two things that, um, and I agree with Andrea, you can't really stop the pursuit of knowledge. And sometimes it'll be used for malicious uh, purposes. The other aspect of it, I think, the bad is the inadvertent um, problems that we might have with some of these things we engineer. We don't know how well they'll function. That's where, as a community, we have to set standards that, the, if, for example, the FDA will have to adopt about these therapeutics to make sure that, that, that we don't do harm on average, that, that we, we apply these methods to extreme cases where there is, for example, no other alternative. So these standards will evolve. Mm -hmm. and, these things happen naturally all the time. I don't know if you looked at Aspen recently. There are no trees anymore because of the, uh, of the beetle infestation. The entire forest has been completely destroyed, and, I just, and there was no genetic engineering at play. So these, these, uh, these things happen, you know, an organism or a microorganism getting out. Uh, the other one is like, I don't remember the name of the species, but this plant that grows over vegetation, if you go on every uh, U.S. Kudzu, highway right kudzu, now. Kudzu. 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 
uh, didn't exist 50 years ago. Now, essentially, the, the entire forests are completely covered in that. In or the CCR5 deletion in the, in the Berlin patient, it's called, for the na native immunity to HIV infection. It was, uh, in that, that deletion occurred naturally. You know. yeah. and I have the impression you, in discussing these new sequences, were trying to get somewhere with it. Were you leading towards the possible problems with it or the positive aspect there was something implied in what no, you were I saying was just, I was just putting out putting out there the idea oops putting out there the idea that that the novelty uh, is is at a new scale that it's it's I just I was not going to put any value judgments on it all at all but just to say that the possibility for uh, one of the things I've, I've talked about with students it's not a question of if new forms of life are possible it's when it's not how, if, it's how when. Many, yeah. and, and so I think that's something that, you know, one needs to think about. I, um, I, I sort of agree with what you two were saying before. I think transparency, right? Um, and you can't stop the progress of science, but in an attempt to prevent evil from happening, I think transparency is the most important thing. And it's certainly think, better to know than not to know, because otherwise somebody else will do it first. <laughs> right. But I think you know, when people do things behind closed doors in secret, then, then you've got to worry. I mean, we've seen that in societies forever. But when people do things out in the open, I have more faith that people will do good things. And that's a, to some degree occurring. The BioBricks Foundation is the foundation mm -hmm. of people. The idea is you want to build a house with bricks. <clears throat> you don't want to build a genome and an organism in the same way. And all the parts, you can order them online. Are all you can look up at what every piece is, every piece of DNA, it's all open. Yeah. I wonder if you're also, though, up against a certain psychological uh, orientation of the public who is not steeped in the, in the science, where there tends to be an idealization followed by a de-idealization of new technology. You know, it's, I think the same thing happened with nanotechnology, that like there was the promise of, you know, all these wonderful things that were going to take place in the world and transforming uh, human life. And then there's the, you know, the big bad gray goo that's going to, you know, the nanobots that are going to take over. But I, I wonder if there's I think you make a really good point because I think people are essentially scared of what they don't really understand in detail. And so when you do a graft and, and put a plant on top of another one, people understand that intuitively. Um, and they're not scared of it simply because they feel they have achieved that level of reassurance that is necessary to let that be in the back of their mind. Uh, when you start talking about very complicated operations, the manipulations of you know, fundamental molecules of life, then people only grasp certain aspects of it, and it scares, it scares them to no end, because simply they don't know exactly what's being done. Uh, and so I think that one of the things that really should be important about this, about demystifying this process, is to actually really have a major effort in education and in dissemination, because some of these things can be explained in relatively simple layman terms in a way that, you know, if you want to know about it, you, you can actually do it. Well, I think there's the educational aspect and the fear that, that you refer to, right. but I also wonder whether you think that there's uh, just a tendency that when the, the promises, especially when these new technologies are kind of hyped and people don't really know what, what the hard work is all about to develop the science, that there's a disappointment then when these things aren't forthcoming. And so then there's tends to... Uh, but I think that disappointment currently constantly exists. Yes. The, war, the war on cancer, hmm. you know, gee, that was 40 years ago. Uh, the, the sequencing the human genome, where's all the great discoveries. Well, the truth is, in the laboratories, 
the war on cancer has advanced, and there have been great breakthroughs, but cancer isn't cured. And the human genome sequencing has led to all this synthetic biology. But, you know, we, we don't, we're not buying anything in the grocery store, at least that I know of, or the drugstore, as a result of it. And I think that kind of, that's just the nature of being human. I, I would like to make one pitch. I think that one pitch as a retired working journalist. I mean, I'm still working as a science writer, but not for a publication, is that I believe it's in the best interest of the scientific community, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, biotechnology industry, uh, to uh, help educate the public. Listen, news people never think, we never think of ourselves as educating the public. We think of ourselves as seeking the truth. But there are very few people who are as skilled as I am in doing what I do. And it took me about 30 years to figure out how to do it. And um, I would argue that as the science gets more complicated, as these issues become uh, uh, more difficult for the lay public to grasp, that a, uh, a group of writers who can translate science into understandable, easily accessible, but an entertaining, uh, not just writing, but you know, video and film and whatever. And you know, someone ought to get together because the field of journalism in which those writers uh, bubble up, I mean, there are schools of, of, that teach science writing, but there aren't places for those people to have jobs. I mean, yeah. they, they, in other words, the, the world, the media world has changed so dramatically that it is in a self-populating area. I would say in the 1950s and 60s there was an explosion, and, and in other words, the creation of the science writers, and it was around the space probe. But there was, I mean, think about it. In New York City alone, there were six newspapers, for the, and each one of them had one or two science writers. And writing that's about gone the space. Now, right? That's gone. Science writers are. are it's well, I, it's for what I just told you. The, it's the, that's really yeah. disturbing. And, and without and so what's happening as, again, not to stay too. The, the new model is a nonprofit model. There are a number of nonprofit news organizations, investigative news organizations like ProPublica, that are being funded by not-for-profit organizations, sort of like the Gates Foundation, the Kaiser Foundation, Kaiser Health Foundation, underwrites. Um, the science news at uh, PBS, and the Gates Foundation is underwriting science news at NPR. Hmm. And if those didn't exist, there wouldn't be science writing at those two places. Yeah. So that's Times. my pitch. What? Well, that's the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. What about in Seattle? I don't know. There's, there's, no, there's no science writer. I, I, I think there's, a, there's a, even a, a, a bigger issue, which is not the, I think the scientific literacy issue and our, our ability to outreach is very, very critical to, to, um, to all these issues we're discussing. But I think the fundamental challenge that I see now in, in, in modern progressive societies is, is the lack of teaching of the history of science, science and technology Context. to the to the to the po to the population that is supporting it with their taxpayer money. Yeah. The, 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 if you ask an average person on the street, you know uh, what all this money is going for, they will tell you, well, they're they're they're, they're curing cancer, or they're 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 up, they're using it to develop new nanotechnology, nanobots, or whatever. But actually, what they don't appreciate is that the reason why their cell phone works, which is a miraculous technology. The reason their laptops work has to do with, with a very long-viewed investment in basic understanding of nature that came decades and decades ago. <laughs> Microwaves, 
quantum mechanics attempt to understand the fundamental working principles of the universe that had no application whatsoever. These were just crazy, passionate individuals who worked on specific problems because of their because of their taste in those problems, because of their passion, because of their love of understanding the universe, that decades later, maybe even a century later, accumulated into a level of understanding that allows us to now build whatever the hell we want based on fundamental rational principles. This is the history lesson that we, that we fail miserably at communicating to people. And that's why the budget of the, of the NIH, which supports all of biomedical research, is one-thirtieth or one-fortieth of the military budget in this country, which is an outrage for modern Let me push it even further species. because I think this is really important what you said. There is this perception that you can actually fund applied research and that applied research will miraculously generate the microwave and, uh, and, and the cell phone, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, everything that applied research does is to move our fundamental understanding of how matter and, and biological matter works or, or inert matter works uh, into, into something that is then of, of practical value. But if you don't have that knowledge, you don't push that knowledge forward, the well will dry up and we won't be able to do any more uh, applied research. So the, the idea that we now, everything has to be translational, everything has to be applied, is, is really a major problem because in the long run, we'll figure out that all these things now are being translated and there's no more basic right. advancements that can be translated into and something. And to follow up on that, what gets hit hardest in times of austerity are exactly the topics we're discussing today. Systems biology, synthetic biology, Approaches that are out of the box, that are new, that, ha don't, that don't have a great track record. Because what does well is very well-defined, almost no-risk uh, proposals that attempt to move science forward incrementally. So you have a very well-established field of traditional biology, and if you send your proposal to the NIH, your ability to get that funding for your proposal relates directly to how close you are to existing inertia of knowledge that exists in your field. If you're totally out of the box, you get penalized. And in times of austerity, that's even worse. So if our fields are actually suffering this innovation challenge, partly because of this you know, funding uh, that, 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 that I alluded to, but partly because what funding limitations do is to then, to, to, you know, then it goes to the Congress and goes to the White House, and these guys are saying, we need you guys to have deliverables. You need to give us deliverables within a year or two. What have you done for us in the last 10, 20 years? You promised all this stuff, and you haven't delivered. So we want to make your uh, science more applied. Get, solve these specific problems. They don't understand that in order to have any chance of solving these complex problems, you need a foundation of investment in basic research. You, you and that the, takes a long time. To part do. of the problem isn't the education of what you're calling the lay public. Most of the problem is educating the scientist. Very few scientists know where their history came from. That's true. And you know, if you take the average graduate student now, they will go back two years. Uh, go back ten years. They're considering it a history lesson. Mm -hmm. And if you look, for example, if you want to go back to the cures for cancer, many of the those discoveries came out of the fundamental work by Nusslein Volhard on the fruit fly. Right? This was to understand how a fruit fly cuticle gets patterned. Did all the work, worked out all the original pathways, all the stuff that you guys are working on now, all those pathways were discovered by a set of genetic experiments that then later 
30, 40 years later led to that, uh, those cures. If you want to look at atherosclerosis cures and the statins, prevention, you have to go back to 1948 for the first epidemiological scientific studies which were really pretty much curiosity driven about what relates to heart disease. So the, the, the t you, can, you can draw a trajectory, and that arrow in my experience is about 40 to 50 years if you're lucky, if it's going to work minimally, minimally. So I think the problem, though, is with the scientists as much as it is with right. the lay public. And my thought, kind of is, check one, old cell cycle is all yeast. <laughs> so it was like right. all those, all those Why, basically, how, how all do the it? major yep. target for, for, for the rent. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to one thing that you said, because, um, you know, this issue, uh, we were joking before you, you guys arrived, because I arrived a little earlier, that we always promise science to solve a problem in 10 years. You know, to some extent, you know, Nixon's in 10 years going to solve cancer, then Andy... Uh, I forgot his name, the, the director of the National Cancer Institute uh, in 2000. Um, uh, no, 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 no. won't go there. And the, it was promising the cure for cancer. Probably was going to cancer 15 years, et cetera. Right. And every, every once in a while, we come up with another 10 year or 15 years. But the reality is that actually the, the only problem is that cancer is not cancer, it's cancers, plural. And because a lot of cancers have been solved in the 10 years. For instance, I was in Basel when the day that actually they announced that, 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 that uh, Gleevec was in fact uh, approved, FDA approved, and that actually solved one cancer completely. You know, essentially, you know, 30% of the patient will relapse, but, uh, but, but uh, people that the next day were gonna die in chronic malady leukemia, uh, all of a sudden they were saved. Uh, the same thing in testicular cancer, same things in, for instance, in her two, two breast cancer, I, I wanted to, used to be one of the absolutely worst tumors that you could possibly get. Now they react very, very well to transtuzumab, uh, and, and on and on and on. So uh, I think that we have, you know, if you count the number of 10 years blocks, we've solved more cancers than those number of 10 year blocks. It's just that we have discovered that this is such a heterogeneous disease, both within the patient and across patients. Yeah. You and, want to say something with that? Because I was surprised that you said that well, every patient's cancer is different from the next. So the spectrum of genetic alterations that lead to morigenesis and progression are essentially different in every single patient. Yeah. There's no two patients that have the same, the same set of mutations. There are some recurrent mutations that occur in multiple patients, but those only tell a part of the stories. In fact, we're now doing a span cancer study where we study literally about 7,000 patients that will be fully profiled, and you, you can see that these patterns of genetic alteration, they don't co-segregate on any two patients. Um, and so one, I mean, a big initiative, I was actually part, I'm, I'm, I'm chairing the next, co-chairing the next uh, annual meeting of uh, uh, the ACR, the American Association for Cancer Research, and one of the big topics in that meeting, and also one that we had as a forum in this year meeting, is, is gonna be the N of one study. That is studies, clinical studies, that are gonna have a single patient. And we have three patients right now in Columbia and other places that, uh, that have done these on a genetic basis, we do in a, on a more systems biology basis, where we're trying to solve cancer just for one patient at a time. And not that we think that we're actually going to fight cancer one patient at a time, but we need to understand cancer one patient at a time before we can understand what are the rules that can be generalized. And so this is really... So understanding the genetics, under the machinery... Understanding under how the genetics collapse into right. creating certain dependencies that are then much more universal than the genetics, right? right. So the genetics is distributed. So for instance, let me give you an example. Uh, many very, very bad cancers uh, have a mutation in the gene called KRAS or in other RAS genes. 
Uh, but if you have a mutation in another gene called NF1, you will have almost the same phenotype because NF1 actually is the protein that allows KRAS to, it's called you know, GTPase, have its GPAs function. So whether you mutate one or the other really makes very little difference. And you can have very similar phenotype. And there's an entire set of protein downstream from that that will give you like BRAF and the virus RAFO that will give you exactly the same or very similar phenotype. This tend to be mutated differently in different cancers. So for instance, in melanoma, you may have more BRAF mutation. In uh, uh, pancreatic cancer, 60, 70% of the patient have KRAS mutation, uh, but no BRAF or very few BRAF mutation. So, so, so the question is that if you actually go in and try to figure these things up one gene at a time, you will really never be able to get the full story. And we know, for instance, KRAS is called right now an undruggable target, although many companies, I assume including Novartis, are probably trying to find the, the drug that will shut down KRAS. Um, and so the, the, what we're left with is trying to figure out if this is the actual mutation, what is the node in the cell that becomes the vulnerability because you have that mutation, okay? which may be another gene. So for instance, right now we know that if you use in, in, in prostate cancer a combination of a, a gene that inactivates a protein called AKT through various different mechanisms, and then one that inhibits another protein called MEK, that the tumors that have KRAS mutation tend to be respond well. Um, but that may be just uh, an observation. Will it work in patients? We don't know, except. So, so I think this, this is exactly why I think we need to try and understand tumors on an individual basis before we can now generalize, because generalized has not really helped us, uh, certainly helped us in some cases, but we have picked up the low-hanging fruits, and now we're left with all the other things that we don't really understand very yeah. well. So individual, you know. Well, I can't speak for any other group than mine. Uh, our approach is what we call a molecular pathways approach, which is basically a systems biology approach. Because I would agree entirely that it's very difficult to explain biology in general, whether it be cancer or regenerative biology, on the basis of one protein. But what we know is that the language of biology, the grammar of biology, is the pathway. Signal, the receptor, transduction, into nuclear uh, transcription. And those pathways are conserved from fruit fly to man. Probably only a few dozen of these pathways. So for us, we, what we've taken upon ourselves to do is to try to dissect these pathways, health and disease, and say, not only what are the pathways that are perturbed, because they can be perturbed, as you say, in many different places, but what are the vulnerable nodes where we could hit them with a drug? Mm -hmm. And so for us, we can play with all turning up, turning down, all the different parts of the pathway without effect, but then we'll find one node that may not have been ever known to be associated with that pathway before, and that we can hit, and we know we can turn the pathway on or off, and then that's the beginning of the process. That takes then 10 years after that to make a medicine. And it can get more complicated. I mean, I guess I see similar things in leukemia, um, as Andrea was describing in other cancers, is that being like a cancer biologist today is being sort of like a molecular mechanic. And someone just comes to you and says, I have leukemia, which is the same as saying my car doesn't work. And you just say, well, it could be because you have no gas in your car, you have no wheels, you have no steering wheel, you have no headlights. It could be for any number of other, all these reasons that may actually intersect the same pathway. But just saying, I have cancer, um, can be very, very different for a lot of different reasons. And it's you know, being a mechanic 
uh, makes it a bit, you know, you have to figure out which one it is, I'd say, is what the job is. I think the, I think the, the, the way in which systems biology impacts that, I think, is, uh, is one way, as we were discussing about the molecular pathology and the pathways involved in disease. The other side of this, I think, which is a new revolution in medicine, is a burgeoning revolution in medicine, which is, which is the, an attempt to, to approach medicine scientifically. Science, uh, medicine has evolved through these really kind of old-fashioned approaches to you know, physical science and symptoms. And uh, I think it has done a terrible job of doing the kind of data mining that we do on large data sets that we get from the genome that have billions of pieces of information. So you go to the doctor, you, 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 make, you make all these measurements, they, they use your CBC, you have various physical signs and symptoms written down in paper often, not inputted into electronic form, in ways that could, in retrospect, much better define a subtype of disease. So we lump things together because you know, we're lazy, it's, it's because we, we've never had a molecular pathology, molecular, molecular basis of the pathology that's going on. Now that we have, we can have that molecular pathology. The other side of medicine, which is to characterize and bin individual patients into pathologic classes in order to then come up with the exact treatment that works for them based on these pathway analysis, that's going to be really revolutionary. And I think in, in the field that's most, I think, most in need of that is psychiatry, where um, the, you know, a lot of the classification of disease states are still very old-fashioned and ossified. And I think that's a very exciting area where potentially the kinds of, the kinds of data that we're getting on the systems level and together with existing um, uh, quantification can, can lead to much better. Molecular psychiatry yeah, molecular is what's psychiatry, coming yeah. in. Okay. Uh, can just, can I, want, I direct those questions? Or oh, yeah. One other pivot point, I guess, to, to comment on the, to go back to the mechanic analogy is that we, the humans are, though, difficult, and we do have many, many genetic elements that are not in mice, that are not in chimps, not in rhesus macaques. Uh, you know, there is evolution uh, keeps adding things and moving things around, and so one of the big challenges is people say, well, why haven't you figured out cancer yet? There are, we're still discovering how many genes there are in the human genome. A lot of people think 25,000 or 40,000. The number is at least 55,000 by current counts, and I'm, I can promise you it's going to end up higher. And so, and we're just, you know, getting, even within the scientific community, people to figure out how many genes are there in the human genome is itself, you know, it could, it could almost prompt wrestling matches at conferences, and I've threatened to tackle people who use the number 25,000 genes, and I'll do it again today publicly. Um, but so it, it's, it's complicated, and we're still learning. That's it. Okay. Uh, so any questions? Have to come up here. Please come up here. Uh, thank you. Breathtaking. Uh, what comes to mind is a question about time management. Mm -hmm. You gentlemen have great goals, limited time. How do you want to spend your time and advise other people who might want to do this kind of dissemination and research to divide their time most effectively? Sleep less. <laughs> um. Well, I, I would say it would be fantastic if, um, if we were supported at a level that was commensurate with the goals, ambitious goals that we have, uh, and, the, and the impact, the economic and um, 
lifestyle impact that that these, this, this scientific methodology will have in the future. So that would be great because that will free us from not writing grants. Because right now we're spending 30, 40% of our time writing grants to the NIH, yeah. and that's very, very painful. And, and, <laughs> not, and nine out of 10 of those, the funding rate now is such that maybe the 10th percentile roughly, it's maybe worse. worse. That, it's worse, okay. Yeah. So maybe the, I don't know. If it, let's be optimistic and say it was the 10th percentile. That means not the number we have here, but suppose there are 10 of us in this room writing grants to the NIH. Nine of them or more go into the shredder and don't get funded. And then you go back and you spend you know, however many hours or days it takes or weeks it takes. Months. And you write, months. Yeah. And you write it again. So that's, I think it's very hard to make progress when you're spending most of your time writing grants that will go into the shredder and not get funded. And the, the ones that go into the shredder and don't get funded are not by people who don't know what they're doing. They're by, hopefully we know what we're doing, people like us. And so that's... So it's very, so it's very interesting because I spent, I did the opposite of what Mark did. So I spent 16 years in industry, then I moved to academia. And I realized when I moved to academia that I had to start writing grants, which was a completely foreign notion when you are in, in industry. And um, I realized that if an in American industry worked on using the same metrics that the NIH works, there would not be an American industry. Because the idea is that what you actually do in industry, you have a track record. And based on that track record, you keep getting funded. And your track record goes down, you stop getting funded. And you shrink your project. And then maybe you can grow again at a later stage, maybe come up with new bright ideas. In, in, um, in uh, NIH funding uh, uh, concepts with, through the grants, your track record really doesn't count very much. In fact, most of these grants all say exceptional investigators, you always, you'll get top votes for that. But in the end, what counts is whether somebody says, oh, your proposal is too ambitious. Well, you know, whether it's ambitious or not, it should be based on the fact of whether you accomplished in the past uh, funding cycle. And so I think that there's pretty much a general uh, understanding that we need to rethink a little bit the ways that sort of funds for research are, are, are managed and distributed because, and that maybe we need two, two different mechanisms, one for established investigators that we should be based mostly on track record unless you propose something completely new, and one for junior investigators that are really starting to get their, their career launched and need maybe some extra boost and help. But, but the way the system works right now has become really, really very, very difficult. To and there's a... Oh, uh, 80%? Yeah. And there, there's a serious concern, I hear this from friends all the time, that we're going to lose a generation of scientists. That the next generation coming along, people who are in graduate school and doing postdocs now, they look at us and they see that we spend our time writing grants that don't get funded and get demoralized. And they, in graduate school and postdocs, say, I don't want my boss's job, I want to do something else because because of the you know the tightness of the funding and how time is spent, it's very demoralizing. We're certainly losing the American scientists. Because yeah, 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 yeah. The American yeah, yeah. scientists are, are essentially is a, is a species that should go under protection because right now it's <laughs> is is, uh, is under. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's only so many times you can say failure makes me more determined. I guess that's it. So Dr. Fishman had commented that the administration of a particular compound would not affect subsequent generations. Um, forgive me, I missed it. Was it the compound related to emerald, the drug that was being discussed? No, we were talking about the cells that were generated artificially using a construct to target the T cells of a person to their own cancer. I'm curious if other members of the panel would feel confident making that statement. 
that it would not affect subsequent generations? It depends on the therapy. There have been publications of gene therapy that has showed up in germline tissue. Uh, I mean, I can't speak to this particular uh, experiment, but I, I, I think I, I know the literature you're probably thinking That's only T-cells, so you can't so, so it go shouldn't into the germline. It, it, in, in this particular case, it should not, as far as I know. But um, these, aren't, these are not replicating viruses, so you yeah. take out the T-cell, you put in something, when that T-cell dies eventually, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't can't go into the, the, the virus. The, the, you're the you're concerned about epigenetic? Actually, yes. You're concerned about epigenetic? I'm addressing your PR problem, really. Right. Yes. Uh, so epigenetic interactions, uh, it's been uh, intergenerational epigenetic interactions have been studied pretty well in mice, but very scarcely in humans. That's changing with the, what's called the Epigenome Roadmap Project from the NIH is helping with that, but most of that is not intergenerational. And in the short answer is, I'd say, you know, people probably haven't looked at what the, the uh, just for the audience, I guess epigenetic just refers to changes that aren't to the DNA of A, C, G, T, but when you have modifications to those uh, A, C, G, and T, that the letters don't change, but their state does. And so epigenetic changes um, are heritable, um, but we, I, don't, I don't know if there's any evidence. No, there is evidence that they are, for example, there are, it's been proved best in the nematode worm, where you can, uh, something that happens in a grandfather worm can be passed on through two generations epigenetically without any change in the sequence mm -hmm. of DNA. Mm -hmm. There are suggestions from old studies, but they're epidemiological suggestions of epidemiological effects of a grandfather's smoking in Scandinavia mm -hmm. upon two generations later I disease. The diet, wasn't it? No, the diet was, I think the That's diet, you may be right, but the smoking in the grandfather affected the diet of the two the obesity rate in two generations. But that's, a, that's of course, epidemiological. But, but there are diseases that are completely transmitted epigenetically. So the Wilms, Wilms tumors, for instance, is a completely epigenetic disease. Yeah, fra uh, fragile X syndrome is an epigenetic, Rett syndrome is an epigenetic, but, but the actual proof of the transmission is, uh, has been based on in the nematode worm. Well, I ask my question in an attempt to address yours, actually. Um, I agree that transparency is paramount uh, as far as PR for your industry, uh, but hubris and trust, speaking as a member of the public, is something we'll require. Thank you for this time. Thank you. Thanks. I, I wanted to go back to the, the funding issue and ask, so forgive me, this is a very Eastern U.S. Eastern group here, and there are companies that are printing DNA. You can you can order it online mm -hmm. and get little vials of DNA. Uh, there are VCs funding this kind of stuff, and so I'm curious whether you guys have gone and looked for your funding, not with the NIH or, or in Boston, but out in Silicon Valley, where there is in fact a lot of money and the freedom to do really interesting stuff. The, the VCs tend to fund, I mean, especially these days, they tend to fund, they tend to be essentially bankers. What they want to do is to minimize absolutely every risk possible and yep. assure themselves that they're going to have a, a huge return on investment and then jump in. And, and also, and there, there are three to f at most five-year um, you know, horizon, right. and this is just not the way the science can work. Uh, not all of them. Huh? Not all of them. But the vast, but feel the free to let us know the ones. Yeah, that let us know. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you representing one? <laughs> Come see me afterwards. I don't want to take this over. But or, or some of the VC problems are, they're tied to you know very the terms of getting that money are very either onerous in terms of the timeline or what what strings come attached to it are 
um, as a you know, but I've I've done some work with industry, you know, just grants, just well they say we just we're interested in how perfectly you can take a single cell, amplify the genome, and correctly you know genotype it or you know work like that. That's industry funded. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of convergence of ideas and passion from industry and academic and government researchers and clinicians, but. Um, but they rarely uh, intermingle as much as they should, I think, is what you're getting at. Um, the major issue is the goal-directed nature of that transaction, and that you can't impose that expectation on scientists who are attempting to understand the system they don't know much about, right? You need to s support innovative, uh, adventurous researchers to follow for, you know, for five, 10 years down a path that they don't even know ahead of time, and that it might not yield anything. And if you do enough of that, once in a hundred, you will have the breakthrough of a generation that will solve all your problems. You just don't know who that person is going to be. And that is not the kind of structure that industry VCs will support. They just cannot, they cannot quantify the risk and the, and the ROI on that. So let, me, let me give you some very practical examples. So we are all uh, sort of asked by many pharmaceutical companies and biotech uh, to work and collaborate with them. But the kind of collaboration that they always have in mind are the ones where we, they look at something that we've already done and is really yeah. ready from practice. So two, year, two days ago, we just signed a letter of intent to do a clinical trials in breast cancer. That was a completely novel concept coming from systems biology. So that's now being done. That's the kind of thing that they're looking for. They're not looking to fund the research that led to that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the problem is that, that that well will dry up. And you know there are some companies, like for instance, Novartis that, that, and, and, and others that actually have also take a step back and, and have a lot of collaboration. The CCLE, this is the creation of this thing called the Cancer Cell Line Encyclopedia, has been one thing that Novartis has done. Has been it's been transformational for the entire community. Um, and it's truly a, a basic science effort. I wish there were even more dissemination of the data that came back from that into to the open community. But uh, what has already been put out there has been really valuable. And this has been collaboration with, in that case, the Broad Institute and, uh, and other institutes. So there are, there are examples like that. But I would say 99% of the examples that we have are very, very pragmatic. Um, I'll talk to whoever wants to after. That's great. I'd love to, if you have ideas. <laughs> Crazy billionaires making more than these. That's right. That sounds good. <laughs> um, so we're funding a lot of the end of ones, for instance, using th that type of support. Yeah. Uh, while I agree with all the places where blame was placed, I think one was not mentioned, that is the drug companies themselves. I can't remember the exact numbers, but if you look at their marketing budgets versus their research budgets, you know, it's opposite directions. And you know, just look all the ads on TV. Um, and my question is, wouldn't that money be better spent supporting your guys' research than marketing? And what, what caused this? Why did drug companies go in this direction? <laughs> well, Mark, Mark, we may have Mark, unbiased well, answers. Okay. So I, I run research, so I'm happy to have as much <laughs> of the funding as I yeah, can get. Yeah. But there, there, you have to remember that the companies, and I'm not defending it, by the way. I'm just explaining what I think happened historically because I'm not an expert in marketing. But these are publicly held companies. So these are companies that part of their job is to make money and to have a share price. It worked is the answer. In other words, they were able to make money. So here's the history that's an interesting history and I think is quite educational in terms of thinking how they should go forward. Historically, uh, pharmaceutical companies could make a lot of money by making uh, minor modifications in a drug that was there. 
So if you look at the history of FDA approvals over years, there's only about 20 new drugs approved a year, which is very few considering the number of pharmaceutical companies, and only five, six of those are really new and would change medicine. The rest are relatively minor modifications. You say, well, how can a company do that? And they did that because they could. it worked. It was cheaper to do the experiment because you already knew that it worked when you got into the clinic. All you had to do was change the slight absorption. It's not that they're always unimportant changes, but they're relatively minor. Now, Also patents, because yeah. the patents running out, they just modify and get a new Exactly, patent. exactly. But here's the problem now, or, which is, I think, good in the direction that you're suggesting. Uh, as governments throughout the world, not just the United States, become more conscious that the medical budgets are eating up a lot of their uh, funding, they're pushing for, for novelty. They're saying, I don't really want to approve or not or to fund, uh, but pay back for something that's not really innovative. So the pressures from the outside are now conspiring, I believe in a good way, to force companies to do more innovative work and to have more breakthroughs. The other thing that's changing is uh, I think that the notion of marketing, which was driven by just num sheer mass efforts, that's why it was so expensive, is not necessarily the future when you have uh, a lot more that can be available online, on the web, uh, etc. So I think there may be a lot of forces conspiring to change that balance over time. At least that's my hope. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that we've observed actually over the last few years is that there's been a shift back towards uh, pharmaceutical company and biotech engaging uh, academic uh, centers at a much earlier stage uh, and essentially outsourcing to some extent part of the research. Uh, we do it a little differently. We have actually ex markedly expanded my basic science discovery group. So a very large part of what we do is fundamental pathway analysis and fundamental discovery, publishable work. We have a hundred postdocs. We also interact a lot with academia. So for my bet, which, yeah. which we don't know if it'll work because this thing takes so long, is that the more we discover fundamentally, mm -hmm. in the long run, the more uh, medicines will be. Hi. Uh, I might be at the wrong place. I'm not sure. Um, I, need I to think grow. we all feel that way, actually. <laughs> uh, I need a, a new disc growing. Is there anything going on out there right now? I, I broke my lumbar six years ago and destroyed the disc. I can tell you a little bit about it. Right now, it's early stages in what's called regenerative medicine. Uh -huh. And I certainly can't promise anything now, but there are two directions that you can think about. One is that there are some studies that suggest that you have in your, so the problem is your, the, the, the disc is distorted, the bone is distorted. So the question is, can you regenerate normal tissue? And we know we do have cells sitting in our spine and in our cartilage that can do that, mm -hmm. but they don't. So one set of groups are looking for drugs or- To for, spark that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the other, of course, are devices. And there, I'm not an expert at all, but uh, newer, smarter, better devices that are, are less destructive. But you, know, you may have an extreme form of it, but I, everyone has uh, degenerative disease in mm -hmm. their, their spine, uh, pretty much everyone over, uh, in middle age or over, has, starts having problems with it. We're not meant 
to stand upright, but it's a big problem. It's ninety-four percent of people over forty that have yeah. these issues. Right? Yeah, it's a huge problem, mm -hmm. and it's been. But I think now with our understanding of developmental biology and where the the, the stem cells come from, in the, the I'm not talking about the kind of stem cells you read about in the newspaper, but the stem cells that sit in your cartilage or sit in your bone that could become new cartilage or bone. They're there. I can't, though, promise when. Uh, is anybody working on the cure for greed? For what? A cure for greed. Greed. I think we'd <laughs> yeah. have to understand it first. That's the, uh, that was <laughs> the reference to the psychiatry, I think. That's, that's, <laughs> that's an important one. Thank for that. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. First of all, thank you for extraordinary discussion. And to ask my question, I have to make a couple of points. First, if we oversimplify, we summarize what was said here, it's like we believe in evolution, but we don't like it. We like creation. And second uh, point is <clears throat> If we start to play and we create toys, we won't stop. Hmm. And at some point, it's a question from like your question, when humanity will end. Hmm. It's like, at, the, at some point, we will be able to create something from scratch. Hmm. And probably in our image. So would we do this? Would we give these new creatures absolute independence and free will, or we try to control them? If they're sentient, absolutely. <laughs> if, they're, if they're bacteria, it becomes, uh, that's a good question, I think. If they're, if they're bacteria that you made, I think there should be some statutory responsibility for the thing that you created that has no sentience. I think it has to, otherwise people will make them and say, well, I don't no, know. No, I'm not. saying about something bigger, like in our oh. image. Well, then, yeah, then, well, I mean, you know, what it, it, you, children essentially are made in our image. And then, <laughs> but we wait till they're 18, I guess, you know. They, um, I, I don't. I don't give my children free will. So. <laughs> they take it. But you don't have to give they it. They have to they take, take it. it. I'm not going to give it. But this came up too when people talked about cloned or IVF babies. Are, you know, are they real people or do they have souls? Or these questions have come up before. And I, I think without question, if they're people, uh, you know, if they have somewhere between 45 and 48 chromosomes and they look like all of us and they are what we'd call human, then I think it's. I think it's. it's you don't even have to go. You don't even have to go that far. I mean, right now. There's always been, you know, from you know, half of the sci-fi literature is about getting sentient organisms that are actually non-biological uh, non based. Yeah. You know, they're they're silicon-based, and I think that's probably uh, a much earlier, uh, much earlier things to come because now they're starting to achieve some pretty dramatic computational power. So, and already they're starting to displace some pretty scary ca characteristics. So, and I can't speak for everyone, but I'd be happy to give more rights rather than to take them away from entities. But uh, it's easier to, for control purposes, I guess, to take them away from things that you are scared of. But we have one last question. Thanks for, uh, for, for coming here today. Um, uh, my question actually comes around to the point that uh, each of you come from kind of different sectors of the industry, um, private and research and, and whatnot. Um, what are you doing or what is being done in order to have more of a brain trust and a collaboration of discoveries um, 
you know, I come from the technology sector, so we have a lot of cross-breeding in, in philosophies around designing and, and architectures. Um, but it's easy for us because technology is fundamentally, programming is fundamentally free. <laughs> um, but your funding, it touches the funding issue of where that money comes from and then the private sector of the profitability of the business model. And then actually the interest in the research, right? The actual why are we trying to figure out these protein sequences or what, may, what it may be. So I'm just kind of curious if your opinions on, on that area and, and how you see the future of that moving forward. So that's really a great question because if I've seen something that has been really, is being really transformational right now is that the old model of funding, this is, I'm talking about academia in this case, but the old model of funding where there was, it's called R01 base. R01 is a particular type of grants that funds an individual investigator. So, you know, Chris gets an R01, and then his labs does specific research that they're proposing that R01. Um, but there have been a number of now sort of, we call them networks um, of, of research centers. Um, one that was, for instance, participating in, in the last uh, uh, five years was called Cancer Target Discovery and Development. And it's essentially a group of centers. We started with five centers, and then it's been expanded because it was a very successful experiment to 13 centers. And we are essentially not, not, not just forced, but really in, encouraged to collaborate with each other. And it's been one of the most extraordinary experiences in terms of having um, really valuable, incredibly productive collaborations that we really would never have thought of if we had continued to do the research in a more traditional way. So I think the NIH is starting to recognize this, and I think NSF as well. Um, and so there is, a, there is a trend. I'm not saying that it should be only collaborative research that, that needs to be done, but finding the right balance between the two is probably going to be really instrumental because most of the, especially things like systems biology, um, when we have a system biology paper today, it, it has anything from people that did the mathematical model, people that actually run the software infrastructure, people did the experimental validation, people did the mouse work, et cetera. It mm -hmm. ends up being humongous team efforts, not, not just things that you can do in one lab. And so I think the, you, hopefully we're going to see more and more of these type of collaborations, uh, and, and they will be very, very, pro I mean, as productive as we've seen them be. Thank you. Thank you very much.